morning. Whew, good to be back. I said, I love coaching, I love that ministry, but I, every day I find out I'm getting older, and I feel it more and more. So anyway, okay, uh, we are still in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, and we are still in our Address the Mess series, and I'm going to give you a brief recap, uh, as brief as possible anyway. Uh, now we titled this Address the Mess because the Church of Corinth was a mess. It was just a mess, you know, and so much so that Paul just found he couldn't ignore it anymore. Uh, he had to do something to fix it because he was uh, he was so intimately involved in establishing this church that he spent 14 or 15 months uh, getting them prepared to be a church and to operate under their their own steam, if you will. Uh, and so this was four or five years before he wrote these letters. He was thinking that they were going to be all right. Well, he was thinking wrong because they started messing everything up. They started becoming immoral and carnal and they started being self-righteous. Everything he didn't want a church to do is what they kind of turned to. So now he absolutely had to, to do something about it. Now, they were being heavily influenced by the Greco-Roman culture. And the Greco-Roman culture is very self-centered and they're very godless. Uh, they all but worshipped intellectuals and prolific speakers and philosophers. And so um, now, you know, four or five years after he established this church, he found that he was going to have to go back and basically start over before they just came to ruin now, lastly, Pastor Scotty started discussing Paul's teachings on the resurrection. So today, Paul's going to explain in great detail uh, why the resurrection uh, actually happens and, and what it means to believers. So I titled the message today, The Order of the Resurrection. So that actually was pretty quick, wasn't it? That wasn't too bad. So a brief recap for me anyway. Okay, so let's jump right in. Now, like I said, last week we, did, we discussed the importance of the physical resurrection, and this week he really wants to give order, kind of explain how... The resurrection is going to work in what God's order of operations are. So 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are what? Asleep. Now, the phrase first fruits of those who are asleep is very, very significant. First of all, the Hebrews, I've said this many times, they did not like the word death. They didn't like to say dying. They just didn't like those things. They didn't like the finality of the word death. So they referred to death as sleep or they referred to it as slumber, uh, terms like that. Uh, like most, they believe that those who sleep will eventually wake up. So that terminology works really well with their concept of death because they believe that everyone who died in faith would rise again. So sleep and slumber actually work really well for them. But by referring to the, the first fruits, Paul was recalling an Old Testament uh, an Old Testament practice of bringing in the first sheep of the harvest. You ever hear that song, Bringing in the Sheaves? I'm not saying it because the Spirit will leave the building the moment I start saying it. But that song came from this idea. Uh, but in the Old Testament, they would bring in the first sheaves of the harvest. Uh, and a sheep was simply a bundle uh, of crops that were just tied together at one time. Okay? Now, this was an expression of appreciation to God. This is their way of saying that they were thankful for Him blessing them with the crop. They recognized that it was because of Him that they had uh, a good crop. So Leviticus 23.10 says, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land which I am going to give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheep of the first fruit of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheep before the Lord for you to be accepted. Uh, on the day that the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Uh, now, on the day when you wave the sheep, you shall offer a male lamb, one year old, without defect, for a burnt offering to the Lord. Uh, its grain offering shall then be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma, uh, with its drink offering, a fourth of a hen of wine. Until the until this same day, until you have brought the offering 
uh, of your God, you shall eat neither bread nor roasted grain nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. So this was a really big deal to them. They were not supposed to eat of anything of their crop. They weren't supposed to partake of any of the fruit of the crop until they first honored God with it. Kind of like we're supposed to, when we give, we're supposed to take the first fruits of our of our our, uh, our profit and give it to God. But this was uh, this kind of symbolized their faith in God. Is what it was. I mean, it symbolized. Not only that they were thankful that God blessed them with great crops, but it was also a symbol that they believed God would continue to provide great harvest. They actually believed in bringing that sheep in, that they were uh, that they were anticipating greater crops yet to come. It was their way of saying, "Thank you for the crops we received, and we know that that the best is yet to come, and so we're trusting you with that, and we're giving you the first uh, fruits of our crops." Now, Jesus was the first sheep. Right, if you will, from the harvest of those who had died in faith. This is the, the correlation he's trying to draw here. See, God also anxiously anticipated a greater harvest yet to come. After Jesus being the first fruits of the dead, he anticipated a greater harvest to come, and that was people who had died in Christ who would be bodily resurrected and returned to him just as Jesus was, who was the first. Colossians 1.18 says, he is also the head of the body, the church, he's the capital, talking about Jesus, uh, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Now, the moment believers die, their spirit goes to be with Jesus. Okay, now, a lot of people get confused about death because we have so many, you know, things we see on TV and so many stories we've read, and we just get confused. I mean, it shouldn't be that confusing. We made it confusing. Okay, there was, uh, some pe people used to teach that they called it resting under the altar of God. Okay, and I wish I could tell you where they got it because there's nothing biblical about it. Uh, but they would teach that when people died, they rested in this state of, of sleep, uh, kind of an unconscious state of slumber, until God finally decided to wake them up and take them to heaven. There's nothing biblical about that, but they had people believing it, right? The truth is, the moment you die, the place that you're going to spend eternity, you get to see it and you get to experience it. Not in its finality, but you get to experience it. Uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 6, says, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are what? Absent from the Lord. Okay? For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. You see the transition here? Verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. See, there, there's two states that he mentions when he's talking to the Corinthians in chapter 5. You are either at home in the body, or you are in the presence of God. You are with the Lord. There's only one of two states you can be in. So the moment we, we believe, we immediate, or the moment we die, all believers immediately go to be with the Lord. Now, the part of all humans that eternally defines them in God's eyes is their spirit or their soul. Okay, this body doesn't define you. And I don't know about you, but praise God, this body doesn't define me. You know what I mean? Uh, there are a lot of people that, that fear it. Listen, I'll be honest with you. I am ready for the trade-in. Aren't you? Aren't you ready to get rid of this body? When I was younger, I'm like, why would you want that? Now when I stand up and you hear stuff cracking and popping every step I take, she's ready for a trade-in. I'm kicking the tires. But anyway... Um, so this, this body doesn't define you. What eternally defines you in the eyes of God is your spirit or, or your soul, right? See, because the moment we die, that same spirit goes back to the Lord 
where it came from. Now listen to this, Genesis 2-7. This is where we get our identity. Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became what? A living being. So the part of us, the soul, the spirit of a man that's alive, that defines us, that, that is who we are, came from the breath of God. God breathed life into man. That was him breathing the soul or the spirit into man. And that is who we really, really are. So the body that you have now is just a vessel. Alright? And it's just a vessel that carries the real identity, the spirit or the soul. But God did promise that we would get a new spiritual body. He promised that. We're going to get a brand new body and He will deliver on that promise. And we'll talk about that more as we move on. But Paul discussed this process of this bodily resurrection in depth in, 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 with the first Corinthians. Because they had people teaching all kinds of crazy stuff about after death. So 1 Thessalonians 4.13-18, through 18, he discussed this. He said, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, which means what? Dead, right? So that you will not grieve as the rest, as do the rest who have no hope. Remember that. Okay? Uh, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise what? First. The dead in Christ will rise first. Uh, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, now a couple things there. Um, when it says caught up, what term do we get from caught up? The rapture. Caught up uh, in the Latin, which it was never written in Latin, but when it was translated into Latin, uh, it was raptura, which is where we get the word rapture. So when people say the Bible never talks about rapture, it really does. It's just not in the language where the word came from. That was Latin, that terminology came from. But the concept uh, has been taught time and time again. Now, here's the other thing. You know, it says he didn't want us to grieve as those who have no hope. Hope in the Greek is the word elpis, and it means confident expectation. When we think of hope, we think of, gosh, I hope I win the lottery. We're, you know, in, you know anticipating with, but uncertain, something good happening. In the scriptures, it's not that way. When you say hope, it means a confident expectation. He's saying, don't grieve as people who are not confident that God is going to bring them home. Don't grieve like those people because you have the promises of God. This is what he's talking about, right? Now, we're going to take a closer look at this process as we go to the end of chapter 15, so I don't want to spoil that too much. But I will say this much, and we saw this. Um, those who have died in Christ will receive their new bodies first. The dead in Christ just means those who have died that were believers. I had a friend who was charismatic, and their church was really, I mean, wild. I'm trying to think of a godly way to say this. It was wild. I mean, you jumping, hollering, screaming, wild. And to each his own, I'm not dissing, right? Not my cup of soup, but whatever, you know? So, I mean, and I, he was, we were talking about the order of service, and I said, well, I don't feel like we're boring. You know, I said, we still have fun, and, you know, we, we in service, and we enjoy ourselves. I said, we're just not, you know, doing fat flips down the aisle. Um, and he goes, well, the good thing is that you guys will get to heaven first. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, the Bible says the dead in Christ will rise first, and your service is dead. That's what he told me. 
So I punched him. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do anything. No, but yeah, so that's what I always think about that every time I see it. So, um, but anyways, they will, the dead in Christ are those who have passed before the rapture of the church. Those people will not only get to be with Jesus first, and we'll talk about this here in a minute, they also get their, their glorified body first. And then those who are alive when Jesus returns at the rapture, uh, we will get those bodies in. So then we'll become that great harvest that I talked about earlier that God was anticipating. Because after receiving Jesus as his first sheep, he was just the first fruit, meaning the first of many. He was the first to rise from the dead and to go to be with God. And so everyone who dies in faith will also follow in that in those footsteps. Now, he goes on to a section here, and I'm, I'm trying to get to this, but I love this section. Uh, I call it the two Adams, this section. Uh, but let's take a look at this, 1 Corinthians 15, 21. It says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came what? The resurrection of the dead. So he's, he's contrasting two different people here. We'll look at that. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Well, there's the two people he's contrasting. Adam, the first man made in, in Christ. Now, the name Adam, if you're named Adam, I'm sorry for telling you this, but the name Adam is a generic term that just means man or earth. So your mom thought you were dirt. No, no, it just means man or earth. Now, Adam, the one in the garden, was the first of his kind because he was the first man created on this earth. He was the first man created. And now, Adam was not perfect. It drives me crazy when people say that Adam and Eve were perfect. Okay? They were not perfect. Perfection can't have a flaw. As we know how the story goes, we know that they did have a flaw. Adam was not created perfect. He was created without sin. But the scriptures never say that he was perfect. It never says that, right? Nothing illustrates this more than the fact that he was the only sinless until he was tempted. So he was only sinless and considered what people call perfect until he had the opportunity to prove he wasn't. And then he failed. Let's look at this. Genesis 13, 1 through 3. Or 1 through 13. 3, 1 through 13. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast in the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, and he said to the woman, well, no, I'm just kidding, I'm going to get emails. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the, fruit, from the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. You notice she added a little bit there. God never said they couldn't touch it. He just said they couldn't eat from it, right? Verse 4, The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, that part is true, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Okay, now, if you notice, the first sin committed in the garden was not eating the fruit. In my opinion, the first sin committed in the garden was coveting. She saw the fruit that God said, don't eat of that. And the devil told her in the form of a serpent, he said, hey, he just knows the moment you eat that, you're going to be a smart attempt. He just knows that he'll no longer... You know, if you eat of that, you're going to be as smart as him, and he loses his control over you. So she desired the authority that God had. She coveted the authority that God had. And I think it's funny, 
because guys always make fun of it because Eve was the, you know, was, the, was the one that was deceived. But at least she was deceived by the devil. We were deceived by the woman because she was naked. That's exactly what, what it was. I'm sorry, that's what it was. She says she ate it, and there was no debate. She ate it and goes, hey, eat this. Okay. And he just ate it. Didn't say a word, okay? Which is a whole other sermon that we get started. But um, verse 7. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God uh, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the, men, uh, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? Now, understand something. He knew where they were. Okay, this wasn't hide and seek and the Lord was losing. That's not what this was. He knew where they were. This question was not a physical question. He was saying, hey, where are you at spiritually now? Where is our relationship now? Okay, he also uh, knew the answer to that. Verse 10, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Verse 11, and he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, you gave her to me, right? She gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So throwing people under the bus was from creation, okay? From creation, people threw people under the bus. Because Adam, Adam's was the lamest. At least she could say, I was deceived by the second or the most powerful being in the world, right? Adam's just going, whoa, you're the one that set us up. And she deceived me, okay? So Adam was placed in the garden with Eve, and, and they only had one command. The command was just don't eat that tree. You can do anything else, just don't eat of that tree. But just like when you have children, if you say don't touch that, what are they going to do? They're going to touch it. They may not have ever cared about that until you say don't touch it. Now they care, right? Same thing that happened then, right? He said, don't touch it, or don't eat of it, and now it became the most beautiful thing in the garden after the, after the enemy told them that that was uh, desirable to make them wise. So t Satan took this one command and used it to destroy all of humanity with one command, right? One temptation. So the moment that Adam sinned, he brought death upon all mankind. Now people have asked me for years, why that is. They say, that's not fair. Why is it that I have to suffer because he was him pecked? Why is that? Why do I have to suffer because he gave in and ate what he wasn't supposed to? Well, Adam was a representation of man. Remember, the, the generic term means earth of man. He was a representation of all mankind. And here's how it works. Any of us in that situation would have done the same thing. And before you say, no, I wouldn't, can you look me in the eye and tell me that everything God tells you not to do, you don't do? And if you can't, then you would have done it too. All right, so he's just a representation of all of us. So that's when people say, well, that's not fair. Well, it is fair because God knew that's exactly what all of us do. So uh, Paul explains this in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. He says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all what? Because all sin. Sorry, self-righteous people. Verse 13. 
For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So the first Adam brought death to all of humanity, to all of mankind. Now Jesus was also the first man of his time, because Jesus was the first God-man. He was all God and all man in one form. Okay, all God and all man. He was the first God-man. He was also the first and only person that was conceived without any contribution from a man. Okay? He was conceived without any contribution from a man. He was born as the product of the Holy Spirit and a woman. The Holy Spirit and a woman. Okay, Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 20. It says, But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of what? The Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord uh, through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and she shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So unlike the first Adam, Jesus was born sinless and perfect and remained sinless and perfect despite being tempted. Okay, the first Adam was only sinless until he was tempted. The second Adam, or Jesus, was sinless even though he was tempted. He remained sinless. Okay, this is a comparison he's making. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one, capital O, talking about Jesus, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet what? Yet without sin. So he was facing all the same temptations we do, yet he didn't cave. Verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace, uh, and, and, uh, find grace to help in a time of need. So the first Adam sinned and brought death to all mankind. The second Adam was the perfect Lamb of God who took away the sin and the payment from sin that Adam brought into the world. Okay? And, and John the Baptist actually pointed this out. John chapter 1, verse 29. said, The next day he, talking about John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sin of the world. So the sin that Adam brought in was paid for and taken by Jesus himself. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, remember, free gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay? Now, it's tough when people lose something. And I have people all the time that, that get mad at God when someone close to them dies. And when I was 15, I lost my mother. And I was furious with God. I remember actually looking up to heaven and saying, well, it sure paid off for her to be a Christian, didn't it? That's, that's literally what I said the night she died. I was livid. The woman never smoked or drank and died of cancer. I was absolutely livid, right? What I didn't understand until several years later when I became a Christian was that death is not God's design. He didn't bring death. Had we followed his plan, death would not have existed in this world. God did not bring death. 
mankind brought death. What God brought into the picture was he brought the solution or the cure for death through Jesus Christ. But for some reason, he takes the blame for something he did not create, death. He always takes the blame. I didn't realize that until uh, later. But anyway, so Adam uh, condemned all mankind to death. Now, the second Adam defeated that death sentence so all people could be spiritually and physically resurrected. Look at this, Romans 5.18. It says, So then, as through the one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, uh, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made, center, uh, made sinners, even though through the obedience of the one, capital O, who's talking about? Jesus. Through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. Verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but uh, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is so powerful, and I could preach on that for months. But for your sake and mine, I will move on. Okay, now he starts talking about this divine order, how these things work, okay? So, I want there to be no confusion here, you know, Paul listed every bit of the order of how it's going to work through the resurrection. He didn't want anybody to have any confusion, okay? So, 1 Corinthians 15, 23. But each in his own what? Order. That's why, you know, people I think that, that it's, you know, it's uh, old-fashioned or whatever you will to have orderly services. We're not saying you can't have fun, but have services that have order to them. God is a God of order, okay, not chaos. It says, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits after those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom uh, to, God and the fa- um, to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. Now the word order in the Greek is the word tagma, tagma. And it means uh, it's a military term, and it actually suggests the idea of rank. Order talks about rank, okay? That's probably better translated rank. So God has set the order of the resurrection by rank of importance, okay? So the resurrection was established by rank of importance, okay? So Jesus was the first fruit from the dead, or the first to be spiritually and physically resurrected, okay? Now, the second thing was people... uh, to be, were to be physically resurrected, and these were the people who had died in Christ. That was the second order. First Thessalonians 4.16, remember this? It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is second. Again, believers who die before the rapture get to be with Jesus first, and they also get their glorified bodies first, which is something that has always helped me when, I'm, when I miss somebody. Because I think to myself, they are with Jesus right now. And when people say they wouldn't come back if they could, that's not something you just say to make people feel better. They would not leave if they had the opportunity. Because they are experiencing the things we sing about, the things we preach about. They are surrounded by perfect love and enlightenment. They they love us, but they just can wait for us to get there because they sure as heck aren't coming back here. Okay? So they are excited to be there. They want to be there. Alright, so uh, believers who die get to, you know, before the rapture, they get to be with Jesus first. They get their glorified bodies first. When it says the dead in Christ shall rise, what it means is the old bodies, when they are, when they are resurrected, when you see them, they will have new bodies. That's what that's talking about. Okay? 
So just to be clear, it doesn't mean if someone... Everybody asks me this question all the time. Well, is it wrong to be cremated? I want to be cremated. And I say, no, it's not wrong to be cremated. And if you think this through, you probably wouldn't ask that question. But they always say, well, but if you're cremated, what's left for the Lord to resurrect and give a new form to? I'm like, you do know we were made from dirt, right? I mean, they made mud pies and brought them to life. I mean, that's what we came from, right? It's kind of insulting to God to say, God walks up, opens the castle, and goes, oh, man, what a mess. Give me a dustpan. We'll do the best we can. You know what I mean? That's, that's not how it works. That's not, listen, if you're dead for 200 years, guess what you are? A pile of dust, man. You know what I mean? We're just speeding the process up. And here's what I've always told my wife. I want to be cremated. Right? I want my funeral to be more of a party than a funeral. Then I want my ashes put in a pot of chili and don't tell anybody. And so when everybody's eating chili, I want somebody to stand up and say, well, Pastor Chris will always be with you at least for the next four or five hours, depending on your metabolism. No. But anyway, no, I want to be cremated. I just want to be cremated because I'm a cheapskate, okay? So even in death, I want to be a cheapskate. All right, so I just want to be clear. It doesn't matter if you're buried. It doesn't matter if you're cremated. It doesn't matter if you're entombed. Jesus will find you, and he will give you the glorified body that he promised he would give you. Okay, that's, that's a promise, all right? Now, the third order of operations, believers who are alive when Jesus returns will be raptured and immediately receive their glorified bodies, immediately. Now, I don't know what that means. I just know that they're going to be glorified, and I think that's awesome. Now, the phrase, at his coming, is from the Greek word parousia, all right, parousia. Okay, and this is really important. The word parousia means uh, it means at his arrival or at his advent. That's what that means, his arrival or his advent. Okay? Now, so fourth, after the rapture, Jesus will both uh, establish and reign in this millennial kingdom. Okay, so when he comes, this, the parousia also can mean day of the Lord. I had, a, I had a prof in Bible college one time, and I, I always joked my wife and said that he must, have, he must have just looked that word up in the strong concordance and felt like he was wise. So he says, I want you to write your term paper on parousia, or he called it parousia. And I said, okay, which one? He goes, parousia. And I said, we established that. Which one? Just write on parousia. I'm like, you do realize it means his advent, his arrival, the day of the Lord. Which one? There's the day of the Lord's wrath, the day of the Lord's vengeance. Which one? Write on them all. I said, well, you're about to get a book, my friend. You know what I mean? That's what this word means. It just means at his arrival, okay? So... We know that at one, at the fourth thing that's going to happen is the rapture, and after the rapture, Jesus is going to reign in the millennial kingdom. Now, when that kingdom ends, Jesus will turn this kingdom over to God the Father. All right, so look at 1 Corinthians 15, 25. It says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Remember, in the millennial kingdom, people will be being born and dying during the millennial kingdom, okay? The last thing that he's going to abolish is death. Verse 27, For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is ex uh, accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjects all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Man, that's wordy. 
Okay, so basically what he's saying is the kingdom won't end until a thousand years is completed and every enemy that God has is defeated. At the end of the thousand year reign, they have that big battle, blood up the horses, bright all the yada yada, and that's the last enemy. During that thousand years, if you want to know how evil we are in our flesh, people are going to be living in a world where Jesus Christ is reigning. Supernaturally reigning. There are going to be supernatural beings, me and you. Like, I don't know what we'll be doing, floating around doing something, right? Uh, in that kingdom. So they're going to see these supernatural beings. They're going to see God himself, and they're still going to have enough hate in them. No one has to teach mankind to hate. We do that on our own. That there's going to be an army that can barely be numbered that tries to overthrow the Son of God at the end of the thousand-year reign. Right? And the devil's chained up. They can't say the devil made me do it. He's down here going, ain't my fault. I'm chained. You know what I mean? So they're going to be that evil even during that time frame when they're seeing these supernatural things taking place. All right? So until he makes every enemy of God defeated and under his footstool, this, this program will not end. But one end of time thing I think people struggle with is this thousand year reign. I don't think they understand this millennial kingdom very well. But the point of this millennial kingdom is to do just that, to, to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy about the Messiah reigning and ruling in righteousness, and also to put an end to all the enemies of God. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Who's that talking about? Jesus. Verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So... That's the promise of that eternal kingdom, when, when a, a son of David would sit on the throne of David until eternity, ride it out to eternity. And that's what Paul is talking about in verse 25. Okay, now lastly, Jesus will defeat sin and death once and for all at this final judgment. So, Revelation 20. I've got a lot of scripture here. Starting in verse 7, it says, When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. But the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw the great white throne. Now, this is called the great white throne of judgment, and only unbelievers will be present at this judgment. Then I saw the great white throne uh, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. Uh, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged. Now, notice it said the dead. This is talking about people. When, if, death means separation. These are people who are separate from God. Okay, and the dead were judged by the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in them, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so that's the end of his order of operations. That's how it ends. 
when the great white throne of judgment is over, then it's, it's the whole deal is over. And here's the thing, maybe this is wrong, I don't know. But the way the world is right now, and I was just talking to my daughter about this last night, everybody feels like they've got one over on God. I hear people saying, well, we're finally getting this world where we're not ran by religious zealots. We're finally getting rid of the God influence in this world. Listen, never going to happen. You're never going to get rid of the God influence because He created everything you see. Right? And I don't care if you believe in Him or don't believe in Him, you will give an answer to that someday. And it's probably wrong, but there's some, some mindsets out there that I want to stand in judgment because of what they've done to this world. Now, do I want them to get saved? Yeah, I'm going to go. No, I'm just kidding. I do. But... Someday they will give an answer, and science won't save them, right? And culture won't save them, and, and social media won't save them. They'll stand before God, and he, the only thing they can say is, it's my fault. He's going to say, my God, I did everything. I died. I took the sin out of the world on my shoulders. I took it all. All you had to do was believe. And you thought so little of me and so much of yourself that you rejected a free offer that would have delivered you from this very day. Now you have to face the consequences. You ever notice the world is trying really hard to make kids think there's no consequences anymore? There are. And it doesn't matter whether they believe them or not. There are. Okay, now, why is it so important to know the order of the resurrection? Because it should be encouraging to all believers to know that there is no mystery about our future. There's no mystery. When people tell you, well, we don't know what's going to happen in the end, we'll wait and see. Yes, we do. We do know what happens in the end. Paul just described it. The most the entire order of operations, we do know there's no mystery. Every believer was promised eternal life from the moment they believed. We know that. John 6, 47, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Believers were promised that if we put God first, he'll provide for us and protect us until Jesus returns. Matthew 6, 31, do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink? Uh, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, or unbelievers, eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom, His righteousness, and all these things, what? Will be added to you. We're also promised that one day we will also defeat death and that we will experience that same supernatural bodily resurrection Jesus experienced. John 14, 1-3. It says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will, what? And, right, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. All right? This should put things in perspective for us. It really should. No matter how bad things get here on earth, a day is coming when we will be home with Jesus. I know sometimes things get tough, but realize it's all temporary. All of it's temporary. The world wants you to think that the one who finishes with the most toys wins. Let me tell you something. The one who finishes spending eternity in the arms of Jesus wins. That's the real winner. So whether we die or whether we're raptured, one thing we can be confident of is Jesus is coming for us. So I mean, honestly, what really do we have to fear? If you think about it. All the crazy stuff that's going on and people ask my opinion, everybody's worried about politics and who's running for president and who's in office. Let me tell you how this works. Okay? Doesn't matter. Because none of this changes doesn't matter if a Democrat or Republican or Whig party or anything is in office. God's on the front. His promises are always going to be true. 
And I'll leave you with this. Philippians 121. For me, this is what he says here. For me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's how he explains this whole order of the resurrection. I'm going to go ahead and stop there. I'm going to ask you what to please bow your head. We always like to give a brief invitation, and since I went over, it'll be really brief. Uh, but if there's someone here who'd like me to pray for you, just make eye contact and put your head right back. Bless those people. I'm not going to chase you down, but I do want to pray for you. And I do pray for those faces. Bless those people. If you're watching or listening online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you. But believers, when we have messages like this, this should light a fire in you. This should remind you that no matter what the world thinks of us, no matter what's in your bank account, no matter what kind of house you have, no matter what people think of you, what kind of government you live under, if you're a believer, you're a child of God. And you have promises that can't be broken. That you will spend eternity with Him. We should be so fired up from hearing this that it should inspire us to serve. It should inspire us to live what we profess. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your love and mercy and kindness. I thank you for your grace especially because I know me. And I know the things that go through my heart and my mind that no one else knows. I know that apart from you, I could have never been good enough. I'm still not good enough. I'm going to make it not on my merit, but on yours. And I thank you so much that you love me enough to give me eternal life simply by faith. And for someone here who doesn't know you, whatever's holding them back, remove it from their mind. Because if they can believe that what you did was enough to guarantee their eternal life, your word promises they'll have it. So I just pray if they make that decision today, they contact us because we want to walk with them in their journey. But God, for those of us who are believers, if we're going to be obsessed about something, God, please don't let us get suckered into being obsessed with politics and, and obsessed with all these other things that don't matter. Let us be obsessed with you. Let us be obsessed with your promises. And let us be obsessed with the message of the gospel that could change this world that we're always complaining about. Give us a passion to serve, a passion for people. Remove the judgment from our hearts and minds, and let us embrace people more like you did. We just thank you for everything you do, God, and we just pray that as we leave here, you would go with us, let us live what we profess, and if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory for your word. Thank you.